And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think it is evil in your why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Jeff, come on up and I'll pray for you. God, thank you for time and space to meet this morning. Um, I ask that you would meet all of us wherever we're at, whatever we're experiencing this morning or this week or this month or even this year. I thank you for Jeff and the time that he's been able to spend in your word um, over the last couple of weeks. I pray that you would use the words and the thoughts and the ideas that you've given him over the past couple of weeks to speak to each one of us um, and just to soften our hearts to... Um, learn more about you, who you are, and to grow in our faith and love for you, Lord. We need you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. Um, I want to start our time, and I, and I want you to imagine with me uh, a home ownership scenario, Okay. So imagine that you just celebrated one year of purchasing and moving into your first house and you wake up one day and you notice there's just, there's like a, a tiny crack in your drywall. You don't think much about it because your house is like 50 years old and you know, you know, when you get into your 40s and your 50s, things just start to wear down, kind of like your body. But over the next couple of weeks, the crack gets a little bit bigger, and so you decide, okay, I should probably take care of that. So you, you, know, you get on YouTube University, you figure out how to fix a crack in the drywall, you go to your favorite big box store, you buy the tools and supplies that you need, and Saturday comes and goes, and you finish your first successful drywall repair. You feel really good about it. About six months later, Another crack appears in the same wall. No worries. You've already figured out how to fix it. So, and you have the tools, so you're good to go. Another Saturday, another successful DIY project. Well, fast forward, this happens several more times over the next six months, and you're just kind of tired of fixing those cracks yourself, and so you call a contractor. He shows up, he looks at the places where you've fixed the cracks in the wall, and then he looks at the most recent crack that's still visible, and he's like, oh, yeah, sure, I can handle this. Like, I'll be back first thing tomorrow morning to take care of the problem. I got it. So, contractor shows up in the morning, and you're a little thrown off by the heavy excavating equipment that he's pulling behind his truck and the large crew that he has with him. And you just kind of figure that, like, that must be for the next big job after he gets done finishing my small crack in the drywall. But then they start unloading equipment, and your yard becomes this flurry of activity, and just as the excavator is about to 
break through the ground outside your living room wall, you run out to the contractor and you're like, whoa, 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 I, I just asked you to fix the crack in my drywall. And he responds with, yeah, I told you that I would take care of the problem. You needed someone to repair the crack in your drywall and we'll get that taken care of, but that's just a symptom of your real problem. Your problem is that your foundation wall is leaning. Now that's like homeowner's worst nightmare, right? A problem below the surface, a greater need that you didn't know you had. If I were to ask you this morning, what do you need? What do you need in your life right now? How would you respond? Would you know? All of us have needs. We have needs for basic human survival, like food and water, clothing and shelter. We have mental and emotional, financial and relational needs. And a lot of those times, those needs are pressing and urgent. But are you aware of the need that goes deeper and has more lasting impact than every other need in your life? Today's passage is about reframing reality helping us see beyond the needs and the problems of the present world to the deeper, eternal, and spiritual reality, to see our deepest and our greatest need. And the good news for us this morning from our passage and the main point of this sermon is that Jesus has the authority to meet our greatest need. Jesus has the authority to meet our greatest need. We're starting Matthew chapter 9 this morning, and in chapter 8 we saw this pattern emerge that carries through the end of chapter 9, and the pattern is this. Three miracle stories followed by a teaching on following Jesus. And this pattern is repeated three times in chapters 8 and 9. So you can see here on the screen the first cycle. It starts with three miracles, right? In chapter 8, Jesus heals a leper. He heals the centurion's paralyzed servant. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then there's a teaching about the cost of following Jesus. The second cycle begins right after that. Jesus calms the storm. He heals the demon-possessed men. And then our passage is the third miracle in this cycle. Jesus heals the paralytic. And for the teaching, you're just going to have to come back next week. So Jesus has been showcasing his authority over sicknesses like leprosy, paralysis, and fevers. He's shown his authority over nature and over evil spirits, demons. And all of this points to the power and divinity of Jesus as king. He is the one with authority over the visible and invisible world. And in our passage today, Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins, leaving no doubt, no question about who he is. And so our sermon, the sermon is organized kind of in three main sections. Um, one, see your greatest need. Two, trust the one who can heal and forgive. And then some closing remarks. So first, see your greatest need. Okay, the, the last two miracles have happened in and around the Sea of Galilee. And we see in Matthew 9, chapter 1, that Jesus crosses the sea after healing the demon-possessed possessed men in the Gadarenes, and he arrives in his hometown. He arrives at his own town, excuse me. Read there in 
chapter 9, verse 1, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now, we know from earlier in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 4.13, that at this point in time in his life, in his ministry, his own city is Capernaum, Matthew 4.13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And we're not told how much time passes between Jesus arriving back in Capernaum and the interaction here with the paralyzed man. But at some point in time, after his arrival, some people who had likely heard earlier accounts of his ability to heal, they bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Matthew relays this information in one sentence. All right, look at the beginning of verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, two other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, also include this story in their gospel accounts. And you can find them in Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 12, and Luke chapter 5, verses 18 through 26. But Mark and Luke go into quite a bit more detail about all these people had to do to get their friend to Jesus, right? The crowd was so thick. They had to go up to the roof of the house, make an opening, and then lower their friend down to where Jesus was. And you might wonder, why does Matthew leave out all of those details? Well, we're not sure other than he had other things that he wanted to include in his gospel account. And so he, he pared down some stories and interactions to make room for others. And, and this brings up an important note about studying the Bible, especially the gospels. Each of the gospel writers are writing from a different perspective, right? It would be like holding up a gym in front of a few of your friends. Each of you are looking at the same gym, but you're seeing it from different vantage points. In describing it, you may highlight certain aspects of it, while one of your friends sees it from a different angle and highlights another aspect. And that's what's going on in the Gospels. They don't all record the same stories, but when they do, we get their unique perspective. So here in Matthew 9, he, he doesn't choose to include the details about how the paralytic came to be in front of Jesus. Matthew's main focus seems to be on the interaction between Jesus and the scribes and the authority Jesus has over sin and sickness. So if this sermon were coming out of the account from, Matt, from Mark's gospel or Luke's gospel, I'd probably spend more time on the man's friends and all they did to get their friend to Jesus. But that's not a main point here. Uh, it's not in Matthew's account. So I'll circle back toward that a little bit at the end. But look with me at the last half of verse 2. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees their faith, and he makes a, a curious, maybe almost an unexpected statement. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, to our modern Western ears, this sounds strange because we don't readily make a connection between someone's sin and their physical suffering. Jesus' response, it, it sounds out of place. But to a first century Jewish audience, it may not have been the response they expected, but it didn't sound out of place. A common belief was that suffering was in some way the result of personal sin, 
We see this idea in a couple different places in the New Testament. Consider 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 30, where Paul describes how we're to take the Lord's Supper. We see it here. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Paul seems to tie the sin of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner with illness and even death in the Corinthians. Look as well at John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples assumed that someone's sin was responsible for this man's blindness, and even though Jesus says that's not what's going on here, we still see evidence that this line of thinking was prevalent in that day. So, back to the man in our passage in Matthew 9. Was, was his paralysis the result of some personal sin? Some kind of punishment or consequence for an egregious rebellion against God on his part? We're not told. And the story doesn't lead us to assume that either. But it was likely on the minds of many in the audience that day. But even if this man's paralysis wasn't a direct result of his own sin, we do know sickness and suffering entered the world when sin entered the world in the garden. At a very basic, foundational level, every illness and disease, every demon possession, every case of paralysis can trace its origin back to the rebellion of the first humans, Adam and Eve. And from that moment in the garden on through human history, all of humanity and all of creation have suffered under the curse of sin. And so whether it was this man's own sin or the general effects of the fall, the root cause of this man's paralysis was sin. The story doesn't tell us what the reaction was of the paralyzed man and his friends, but I wonder how they felt when Jesus looked at him and told him, your sins are forgiven. Did they get it? Did they understand the deeper reality of what was going on? Or did they like, feel shortchanged? Like, that's great and all, but he's still paralyzed, you know? Like the homeowner who just wants the crack in their drywall fixed. You're going to dig down and do a bunch of stuff. That's great. I just wanted the drywall fixed. This is one of those passages that reframes our perspective that lifts our eyes beyond the needs and the trials of this life to see eternal spiritual reality. And we all need the help of Jesus to see from his perspective. We all have a myriad of needs in our lives, many of them that feel pressing and urgent, that feel like they'll, they'll crush our souls and take the very life out of us if they, don't, if they go unmet. The paralytic man's life was incredibly difficult because of his paralysis. He needed, he, he required 
the aid of others for common everyday tasks. And even here in our passage, for transport to Jesus. I mean, you may not be physically paralyzed this morning, but each of you have real, genuine needs in your life. And this passage doesn't take away from that reality or make light of those needs at all. And yet, at the same time, it does push us to see beyond the needs of our current material existence to see our deepest spiritual need. A deep spiritual need that has bearing not only on the 40 or 60 or 80 or 90 years of this life, but on the 10,000 and 10 million years and more in eternity. That's the reality that Jesus is pressing us to see here. The greatest need in all of humanity is to be made right with the God of the universe. To have the problem of our sin, our rebellion against a holy and perfect God, taken care of. Now we could survey a host of Bible passages to see, um, to see this, but let's look at just one. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Wages are our payment that's owed to you for your work, right? It's what you deserve because of what you've done. And the Bible teaches what we deserve, what we're rightly owed for our sin, is death. For many of you here this morning with needs and situations in your life that feel urgent and pressing, hear me, Jesus cares about those. But he also calls you to see your greatest need. Even if it doesn't feel urgent or pressing, dealing with sin in your life is the greatest need you have. Lift your eyes and let the Lord reframe your perspective. And for many of you here who... You like you just don't feel a lot of need in your life right now. Things may be going really well for you. Praise God for that. But be careful. Don't let ease in this life lull you to sleep so that you miss the greater reality of your standing before God. Lift your eyes and let the Lord reframe your perspective. See your greatest need. Okay, let's move on in our passage and on to our second point. Trust the one who can heal and forgive. Jesus' claim of forgiving the paralytic man's sin, it enrages the scribes who are present. And this is the first recorded altercation that we have between Jesus and the religious leaders in Matthew's gospel. And it's something that will continue to be a theme all the way through the end of Matthew's gospel. But look at the response in verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now, like I mentioned earlier, this story is also recorded in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel. And in their accounts, they add another line after this charge of blasphemy. They add in Mark 2, 7 and Luke 5, 21, who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're thinking in their hearts to themselves, like, this man is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Matthew leaves out that detail, presumably because it just would have been assumed by his Jewish audience. But this was a serious charge, the most serious charge they could levy against Jesus. 
For Jesus to claim to do something only God could do was blasphemous, unless, of course, he was God. The scribes questioned in their hearts, who can forgive sin but God alone? And Jesus is like, exactly. Exactly. The scribes were correct and blind at the same time. They were correct that only God could forgive sin, but they were blinded to who stood in front of them. The very one who held that authority, God himself in human flesh. And herein lies a warning for us all. Believer, not yet believer in Jesus, be careful that you don't get so stuck on being correct that you miss Jesus right in front of you. Let's continue on. Jesus perceives what they were thinking. We see that in verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? The word knowing there, um, it doesn't necessarily speak of like divine ability for Jesus to read minds. Okay? It might just be that Jesus could read the room and he understood what they were thinking in their hearts. Regardless, he goes on the offensive, questioning their unbelief, calling their thinking about him evil, and then he continues his questioning in verse 5. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Which is easier? Now notice here, Jesus doesn't ask which is easier to do, right? He asks which is easier to say. Well, It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's really no way for you to disprove the claim in that moment. It's easier to say that. It's harder to say to a paralyzed man, rise, pick up your mat, and go home because it's immediately verifiable. If he doesn't get up and walk, it proves that Jesus doesn't have the authority he claimed to have. So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But follow the logic. If Jesus can demonstrate his authority to do the harder saying, rise and walk, he'll prove he also has the authority to forgive sins, which is what he does in verses 6 and 7. Look with me there. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. So there are two things happening here that together should leave no question for us about who Jesus is. First, and most obvious to us, the miraculous healing, right? Jesus tells the paralytic to rise, pick up his bed, and go home, and the paralytic did just that. He rose and he went home. Now, this rise and rose language in verses 6 and 7 point to the kind of resurrection life that's part of Jesus's kingdom. In Jesus's kingdom, the paralyzed rise and walk. In Jesus's kingdom, the demon-possessed are raised out of their bondage and free to walk in new life. In Jesus's kingdom, the king is raised back to life after dying a horrible death on a, on a cross, guaranteeing that pain, suffering, and death don't have the final word for any of the citizens of his kingdom. 
So the miracle itself points to Jesus as the divine king. And second, the title, Son of Man. Jesus says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now this was Jesus' favorite and most frequent self-designation, Son of Man. The title has its roots in Daniel chapter 7. Look with me at verses 13 and 14 of Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. For the Jewish people... The son of man figure here in Daniel 7 was widely regarded as the Messiah, right? The promised rescuer, redeemer of God's people. We see that the son of man is is one who would be given a kingdom and reign over all nations for eternity. And as Jesus uses it as a title for himself, he's saying the promised Messiah, the son of man, he is here and he's ushering in a new kingdom showing what his good rule and reign looks like. He is here because I am here. Now notice the response of the crowds. Look at verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Upon seeing the paralytic healed and hearing Jesus prove his authority to forgive sin, the crowds responded by fearing and glorifying God. All throughout Scripture, God tells his people when they encounter him, fear not, right? Don't be afraid. But when in the presence of such greatness and might, it's not inappropriate to fear. Fearing and glorifying God are appropriate responses, but they're not all that's required. When we see Jesus the King for who he truly is, we must also trust and follow him, and that's why you need to come back next week because that's where Jesus is going with Matthew. Friends, Jesus has the authority to meet your deepest need. So trust him. The one who can both heal and forgive, he is our hope. Though it's not mentioned here in this passage, the cross is anticipated here. The way that Jesus would once and for all make make way for us to be in right relationship with God. The, the way that he would secure our forgiveness for sin was through his death on the cross. And just like the paralytic who couldn't make it to Jesus on his own, so you and I can't make it into right relationship with God on our own. We can't muster up the strength, the good works to do it. We must trust the one who can heal and forgive. And so, friend, even now, call out to him. Trust in him. Trust him in faith for forgiveness of sin. If it's not Jesus, then what is your plan for addressing the greatest need of your life that will affect all of eternity for you? If it's not Jesus, what's your plan? So third point, I've called it closing remarks because 
there are some really important things that come up in this passage that I couldn't fit neatly into some other point. So we're just kind of grouping them together into closing remarks. Really, it's, it's two questions. What can we learn here in this passage about faith? What can we learn in this passage about faith? And what do we do when the answer is no? What do we do when the answer is no? So first, what can we learn about faith? I want you to look with me again at the second half of Matthew 9, verse 2. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to emphasize two different words here because I think they're really important, and they draw out two great truths about faith. First, faith is visible, and second, faith is collective. So first, faith is is visible. Look at the verse again on the screen, this time with emphasis added. Click to the next slide. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith. It was visible. It was evident. It was able to be seen. We see here that faith is more than just mental assent to a set of beliefs about God. Mental assent or agreement to true things about who God is or what he's done. Faith is about trusting and following and swearing allegiance with your life, all of which demand outward, visible expressions. So, is your faith visible? Can it be seen? Or are you living some kind of undercover faith? Is your faith daily living and active, or is it dormant much of the time? Jesus saw their faith. Now, the second emphasis, look again at the verse. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith. It's not that Jesus saw his faith, right? Only the faith of the paralytic. He saw their faith, also the faith of his friends who brought him. Now, catch this. This man's friends were believing God with him and for him. This man's friends were believing God with him and for him. Brother, sister, who are you believing God with and for? Who in your life right now are you believing God with and for? This story is a beautiful picture of the power of collective faith. If I just kind of opened up the stage this morning, I trust that we could spend hours recounting the ways God has used the faith of someone else to work in your own life. God knows how I've been carried along and lifted up by the faith of many of you sitting right here. Ours is a collective faith, and we need each other. Who are you carrying to Jesus? Real friends get their friends to Jesus. Ours is a collective faith. 
So that's what we learn about faith. What do we learn about faith? It's visible, it's seen, and it's collective. Last question. What do we do when the answer is no? Living in a world, living in a world broken by sin, all of us have to deal with the hard reality that unlike the man in our passage, Jesus doesn't always heal the paralysis. Coming to Jesus with faith that he can heal or rescue or provide in some certain way or restore what's been broken in your life or change a difficult situation or save, it isn't a guarantee that he will. Our petitions and faith aren't always met by granting the request that we've carried to him, so what are we to do? Tim Keller said this about prayer, and it's been really helpful to me. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. We are finite creatures. We're by nature short-sighted. We can't see everything. We don't know everything. And so we come to God in faith with our request, and we should, and we ought to, keep asking and keep knocking and keep seeking. And sometimes we also have to realize that because we are short-sighted, we may not know exactly the best thing to ask for. And so God will either, either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. But is Jesus less loving if the paralytic in Matthew 9 isn't healed? It may not sound very loving or kind for Jesus to tell the man, your sins are forgiven, if what he was really seeking in that moment was immediate physical healing from his paralysis. I get that. In my own life, I know what it's like to wrestle with squaring like what I believe about the goodness and the kindness of God and what I've experienced. Because on some days, the providence of God feels cruel and not kind. The story of Jesus healing the paralytic here in our passage, it isn't a guarantee that he will heal every sickness or disease in this life. It's not a guarantee that every desire or dream he gives will come to pass. It's not a guarantee that we'll be spared from abuse and mistreatment, but this passage does promise Jesus is able and willing to heal our deepest sickness to meet our deepest need by forgiving our sin. And so we're left to wrestle with this. Can Jesus be kind and loving and offering forgiveness of sin, even if he doesn't meet our other needs or come through in ways that we thought he would? Now, this very question flies in the face of the prosperity gospel that's prevalent in the world. The teaching that just surrender to Jesus and somehow that's the magic ticket to a hashtag blessed life, right? The more faith you have, the more charmed and healthy and wealthy your life will be. But what if I told you I believe in a health and wealth gospel, and I think you should too? Careful, right? 
because I think we do believe in a kind of health and wealth gospel, just not as a promise in this life. When Jesus told the paralytic man his sins were forgiven, it wasn't just a nice thing to say to him. It was the most loving thing he could say in that moment. More kind and loving than if he only told him to rise, take his mat, and go home. Contained within, wrapped up in the promise of forgiveness of sin are all manner of promises for ultimate health and wealth. To have your sins forgiven in this life grants immediate and eternal access to the very presence of God. To have your sins forgiven in this life It guarantees your ultimate healing from everything that ails you mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. To have your sins forgiven in this life, it means that when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead and to usher in his kingdom in fullness, we'll be right there with him, with renewed bodies completely free from the presence and effects of sin. To have your sins forgiven in this life promises untold riches as you reign with the king in the new heavens and new earth. All the broken things will be made right. That's the ultimate health and wealth gospel, eternal good news. Don't settle for a cheap counterfeit that only promises blessing in this life. When we struggle to see his goodness and his kindness, and if you walk with God for long enough, you will. We can rest in this precious promise, just like he said to the paralytic, take heart, child, take heart, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And in those seasons when that precious promise, it's believed, but it still doesn't feel like good news because all of the other things, because of all the other things going on in your life, go to Jesus and ask for his help. Go to your brothers and sisters and ask for their help to believe God for you. Ours is a collective faith. And often, when God seems distant to us, he still demonstrates his love and his care for you through the presence and love and care of his people around you. This passage has one great and glorious main truth that Jesus has the authority to meet our deepest need by forgiving our sin. But from that one glorious truth, flow and spring all manner of glorious, albeit lesser, truths. It's like a great big dam that breaks and a trillion gallons of water burst forth, carving new streams and rivers into the landscape. When the love of God burst forth in the world through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, hundreds of rivers of blessing were carved out for us. The blessing of the assurance of his presence with you now and forever. The assurance of Jesus' perfect record on your account. The assurance that as his daughter, as his son, you will never experience the wrath or condemnation of God. The assurance that Jesus will provide ultimate and eternal healing to all who come to him. We may not experience it in full in this life, but we can rest assured that all the promises of God are an emphatic yes in Jesus. Rest assured, 
grace will prevail. Jesus has authority to meet our greatest need. Let's go to him. Let's thank him for that now. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you see us. We thank you that you know our greatest need and you have made a way for that need to be met. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his authority to offer forgiveness for sin. We thank you for his power to accomplish that on the cross. I pray, Father, that more and more you would root that glorious truth deep in our hearts, that we would be able to live out of that. Father, by your Holy Spirit, even now, God, show us where our lives don't line up with the truths in this passage. Show us where we're not trusting you. Show us where we're blind to see who you truly are. God, where our faith isn't visible, where we're not living and believing you with and for others. Holy Spirit, bring conviction. Empower us to walk in new life. We love you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.